Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Getting more men back into the workforce. Edward Glazer. I think raising the cost of employing less skilled workers to American businesses is likely to be a mistake. We want to make sure that we get as much mechanization as quickly as possible. We should ratchet up the price of hiring an average worker. But at the same time, we want to make the returns to working higher. We want to make working pay and we want to promote dignity for everyone. So how do you square that circle? Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, there's a slow motion crisis in our economy. Men are much more likely than women to drop out of the workforce. That's right. Back in the 60s, 95% of men between the ages of 25 and 54 worked. Today, only 80% of men in their working age prime are employed. So that's a big drop, 95 to 80%. The unemployment rate, however, is low, but it doesn't count the huge group of people who've stopped looking for work altogether. And when people don't have jobs, a lot of other bad things follow. Divorce, drug use, even suicide. Our guest today has solutions. Edward Glazer is a professor of economics at Harvard and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. I saw him talk about his fascinating book, Triumph of the City, at the TED conference a few years back. His latest article is in City Journal, and it's called The War on Work and How to End It. Ed Glazer is joining us via Skype from his office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You say there's a war on work. What do you mean by that? So there is this 50-year growth in prime age male joblessness that I, I think is America's largest unsolved social problem. Some component of this is about economic changes that have hit less well-educated Americans um, and have reduced the relative returns to working. But there are also public policies, and we have, in some sense, been focused on the wrong battle, right? We've been focused on the battle on inequality rather than on the battle of, of joblessness. And there are policies like raising the minimum wage that would seem to be good policies towards inequality, but there are also policies that reduce the incentive of employers to hire lower skilled workers. So I think we really need to do things that are focused on reducing joblessness. Ed, you're talking, you're using this phrase prime age adults. By that, I assume you mean uh, adults in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and early 50s, yes? That's, that's right. And as someone who is reaching the high end of that age, <laughs> I want to complain myself personally <laughs> on how unfair I think that term is. But. <laughs> okay. Why is this a crisis for men 
rather than being something we should also address for women? We should absolutely address it for women as well. The focus on men is purely a data artifact, and it reflects the fact that prime male joblessness is pretty universally a bad thing, whereas there is a large fraction of women in the, in the labor who are not in the labor force who voluntarily chose to leave the labor force to engage in parenting. And I don't have a view on whether or not that's something to encourage or discourage. But those women who have left the labor force not voluntarily, but because they've given up, much like their male counterparts, are absolutely as worthy and crucial of public policy attention. And, and you also make the point that, that men who are unemployed are much less likely to do anything in the household, like that's household chores, than, than women are. That we're just likely to sit on the, on the sofa and do nothing. You know, I, it's uh, it's a sad truth about uh, our gender, but I can I can empathize with the guys. <laughs> so 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 as something of a liberal, for me, it's troubling to hear you say that it sounds like an either or problem. That it's either we concentrate on inequality or we concentrate on on joblessness. Am I wrong here? It's. It's not exactly an either-or problem, but with an overwhelming focus on inequality, we miss the curse that is joblessness. Let's take an even more extreme example, universal basic income, right? The idea that we're going to make sure that all Americans get some minimum amount of income, whether they work or not. Um, that's a strong policy against inequality, but it's likely to promote more, not less joblessness because you're turning off the incentives to work. Whereas policies like the earned income tax credit that ramp up the returns to working are, are policies that potentially push people back into the labor force, back into having productive jobs. And I think the critical thing is, it's not just about material success. It's about a sense of purpose in your life. And when you look at the data on jobless prime-aged adults, the data shows something, shows misery. The data shows much, much worse outcomes than people who are earning a little bit less income, whether or not it's in uh, divorce or unhappiness or drug abuse. And we really need to focus on those policies that will both fight against inequality and, I think, more importantly, fight against joblessness. How damaging is it for men and women to be out of the workforce? What kind of problems does it lead to? Divorce, unhappiness, drug abuse. Um, so, uh, for example, the, the increase associated with people saying they're unhappy for being unemployed is 19.1%. And this comes from the Center for Disease Control. By contrast, the difference in percent reporting themselves unhappy between earning 25 to 30 grand versus earning 35 to 40 grand is 2%. So in other words, there's, there's not, nothing like as big a drop-off in, in happiness like among low-income people. Exactly. Moderate increases in income just have no impact on happiness relative to the incredible importance of joblessness. And it's easy to see why that would be, right? We're in a society that values work. We're in a society where work gives us friends, gives us a sense of purpose, and you're stripping that away from, from someone. Um, and it's not surprising that they, you know, uh, their marriages fall apart, they, they turn to drugs, things go radically wrong. I like the goals of a campaign for a living wage. I think it's very difficult for people, especially with families, to raise children on 10 or $11 an hour. Are you saying, though, that low wages are less of a problem than being out of work? In other words, if you had to pick one, it's better to have a job, even if it isn't paying you what it should, than to have no job at all. Well, now it's my turn to say it. I don't think it's either or. <laughs> so uh, I think raising the cost of employing less skilled workers to American businesses is likely to be a mistake. 
right? If we want to make sure that we get as much mechanization as quickly as possible, we should ratchet up the price of hiring an average worker. But at the same time, we want to make the returns to working higher, in part because we want to drag people back into the labor force. We want to make working pay. We want to make it and we want to promote dignity for everyone. So how do you square that circle? I think it's time for us to think about a strengthened version of the earned income tax credit that says that, let's say, the payment that firms make stays the same as it currently is. But we then top that up three, four dollars, whatever we think is fiscally prudent and fiscally possible. We ratchet it up so the effective living wage is going to be significantly higher than the wage that firms pay. Yep. Let's walk through that for a moment. Earned income tax credit. It's it's a phrase that a lot of people use, but I think uh, some listeners may not know exactly what it means. Right. So it's a federal program that's been around for about 20 years. It gives people an added financial incentive to work. It was typically targeted towards uh, mothers, not towards single men. And it's been shown to actually increase labor force participation to increase employment. Now, it has you know many weaknesses, one of which is it's quite complicated and, and assuredly has less effect than a simpler policy. Uh, a, a wage top-up, a uh, federally supported living wage that, that meant that, let's say, the firm is paying $8, but you're getting $12 an hour thanks to federal support, uh, that's something that would be much easier to, um, for people to understand. The only question is how much of that we can actually fiscally afford. Uh, I would like to couple that with a reform around other, you know, other benefits in order to cushion the financial cost of such a such a program. Now, you mentioned minimum wage increases. What are some of the other well-intentioned government policies that are having this unexpected or or, or um, perverse kind of uh, backfire effect on employment? Sure. So we have a series of relatively disconnected uh, social policies that are aimed to at reducing inequality or reducing the downsides of inequality. Section 8 housing vouchers. So these pay you some, you know, pay your rent if you're a poor person, food stamps, um, Medicaid, uh, and so forth. And these policies, all of which are well-intentioned, many of which have positive actions, can often create an implicit tax on earnings, meaning that your voucher payment goes down 30 cents on the dollar for every dollar that you earn over a certain amount. Um, your food stamps go down again 30 cents on the dollar. You can pretty quickly get close to 100% effective tax rate on the earnings of poor people because they lose these programs as they get richer. So it doesn't pay you to go back to work and, and, and work because your, your benefits get cut so dramatically when you do. Right, exactly, exactly. An even more extreme example, right, is disability, where you, you have this disability payment if your work goes over the, the nominal amount that's allowed, uh, you lose your disability payment. So it's a huge price for you for going back to work. Um, and work and of- talk, talk about the number of people on disability now compared to the 1960s, because a lot more people are on disability, even though jobs have actually become physically less punishing. That's exactly right. We've had a substantial increase, in, and it's, of course, in the millions, of people going on disability payments. And that rise has occurred despite the fact that almost everyone thinks workplace safety is higher than it once once was. Many of the increases are in things that, of course, are real complaints, back pain, um, other forms of disorders, but are not you know, 
easy to perfectly diagnose and to screen out whether or not someone obviously has a real condition or not. There are some social scientists who have even speculated that the need to get disability causes people to manufacture back pain. So it's, and I'm not suggesting faking, I'm saying that their minds make them physically experience great pain, um, which, you know, if true, is sort of an amazing statement about, about what these policies can do. But we have good ideas how to reform it. There's a great experiment that Magnum Mogstad uh, identified in, in Norway, where they let people in Norway who are on disability take home, I think it was 50 cents on the dollar of their earnings over the maximum they were allowed to keep. And they went back to work. They started earning more. Usually people who are disabled have some ability to participate in the labor force. Maybe not everyone, but many do. Maybe and go back for a part-time job or something absolutely. like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we should not be setting systems in place that create really strong financial incentives to stop them from working. Let's talk about the push for the $15 an hour minimum wage. You think that's a bad idea. Why? Well, if you could do the $15 minimum wage through a government subsidy and keep the current minimum wage where it is, I'm all for it. Um, so that would be a, a, a form of like just topping up the amount that people up, make. Up that's, I mean, I'm all for making work pay for more people. But it's very crazy to think that we want to induce people to work more by essentially taxing those firms that actually are creating jobs for people who are lower down on the skill distribution, right? I mean, we have this national crisis. Stipulate that it started by economic factors, automation, economic changes that that moved us away from, from industry. And some entrepreneurs are figuring out ways so that people with fewer skills can actually still earn a living, can still go to work, can still be productive, can still have a sense of self. We ought to be celebrating those entrepreneurs, not telling them they need to pay more and more. And whatever you think we want to be giving to those people who are less skilled, why in the world should we tax the people who employ them to do that, right? And even more crazily, why should we want to be taxing the customers of the people who employ them to do that, right? Because if I put a tax on uh, a fast food restaurant that serves primarily poor people, I impose a higher wage on them, good chance that the marginal costs of that restaurant are going to go up, good chance they're going to be raising their prices. And who's eating in this restaurant? Not the, you know, not the richer residents, but the poorer residents who are actually eating at this place. So a lot of progressives here in the U.S. have this idea that all of Europe runs on some kind of semi-socialist Bernie Sanders model, and it all works really well. But you point out in your article that a number of European countries have actually cut back on some of their benefits and implemented policies to emphasize work more, while others, such as Spain, have kept the, the, uh, the very generous safety net. What are we learning? Most places, you know, social democracy does two things, one of which is, I think, un- unabashedly good, one of which is much more problematic. The good thing is that social democracies have tended to be fairly good on education. And that includes both formal education and things like German vocational training, the famous apprenticeship method. But we look at educational outcomes as, let's say, measured by the PISA test. These northern social democracies have typically done quite well on that. Wait, the, the, what, 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 the what test? The PISA, PISA test. test. These are international tests of, of math and science. And the U.S. is usually sort of in the middle to bottom half of the, of the countries that take it. So Whereas, in other words, educational attainment on basic subjects in some northern European countries is considerably better than in the U.S. That, that's correct. Um, and that is a very important ingredient into solving this problem, uh, that we actually need to make sure that American kids are as well-educated as they can. We should be learning from Finland. We should be learning from Germany. We should be trying to do all we can to borrow ideas from them on this. 
Now, the other flip side is various forms of labor market regulations, um, some of which are more costly than others. Uh, and uh, I think the way to see the European divide on this is that uh, the sort of northern half of Europe, the Netherlands, Germany, Scandinavia, um, had perhaps more or less the same kind of regulations as the South at some point in time. Starting in the 1980s, these regulations combined with Europe's economic slowdown and the northern countries saw themselves in trouble and they reformed and they kept what they liked and they changed what uh, what they thought was most problematic and they ended up much stronger as a result. The southern economies ended up not changing their regulation. Maybe Macron will do this now in, in France, but consequently they were much more stuck in regulations that held back labor markets, that held back entrepreneurship, that made it difficult to hire and fire workers. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're talking to Ed Glazer, a professor of economics at Harvard University, about men dropping out of... Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The workforce. Let's look at some solutions, Jim. Yeah, so uh, your article actually is really tailor-made for this <laughs> for this podcast, Ed, because you lay out the problem with a lot of facts and figures very persuasively, and then you pivot to some very practical solutions. Let's start with skills, because you have a few ideas for how we can create a better match between the skills of workers and the jobs of today. So uh, let me give you let me give you three things in terms of so, so skills are really crucial. Um, let's talk about three things which you know in increasing order of difficulty. So the first and most obvious set of interventions are early childhood education, right? Which we have lots of evidence on how early childhood education can have a long-term impact. We need to make Head Start more effective. We need to figure out how to do these early childhood interventions in a way that is, is as effective as possible. But the second thing is we have a variety of vocational schools in this country, some better, some worse. Uh, I think we need to do more here. And in many cases, I tend to think that the, uh, that the model which says let's vocational track kids is a problematic model for America. That road gets stigmatized and smarter, more ambitious kids specifically avoid it, leaving the vocational high school to be denuded of talent. Um, so my proposed model is one in which we use summers, we use weekends to actually have third-party providers um, – compete in providing vocational training for kids who are still going through the normal high school track. So this could be the unions. This could be, you know, carpenters union, plumbers union. It could be any uh, any set of groups, and they also already have training programs. This could be uh, private sector 
uh, entities that compete, and it could be the schools themselves. But there are good reasons to think that if you're teaching particularly new economy skills, you don't necessarily want to rely on a tenured 50-year-old teacher. Now, I want to say that because I am a tenured 50-year-old teacher myself. <laughs> uh, and it is clear that if you wanted to train your 16-year-old about how to be a super coder, I would not be the right person for this job. Now, um, now you're part of something called the, the, the Possible Project. What is that? So my role in the Possible Project is purely as an evaluator, but I'm very excited about the project. The Possible Project has been working for several years now. It attempts to train kids to be entrepreneurs. And it does this by starting them off on one of the most basic of all entrepreneurial tasks, selling stuff on eBay. So they have a bunch of donated stuff that the kids need to are supposed to sell off. and The kids get to keep the money. So, you know, this is pretty easy. They, they do it. They learn a little bit about how to how to be involved in running a business. And gradually they move up the, the ladder towards new tasks. So we don't know because this has been rolled out and everyone who wants to do it can do it. We don't we can't really say there are lots of great feel good stories from it, but we can't really say what what kind of a track record this has in the long run. Now, they're rolling this out in Madison Park in Boston, which is the vocational uh, school there. And we're going to get to do a randomized controlled trial where some kids are going to be allowed in the first class and some kids are not. We're going to be able to see whether or not this has a longer term impact on the life trajectory of these kids. And, you know, it looks like a great program, but I, I don't think, you know, the right answer is any one program. I think what we need to do is have a flourishing of different entrants into this space with serious evaluation and we scale up what's good and we shrink what's bad. And I think it's really important that if you do an innovation in this space, in the training space, and in general in the public policy space, and you don't also engage in a randomized controlled trial that evaluates it, it's like it never happened. And we really need to start with the humility that says we don't know how to do this perfectly. And on, on how do we fix it, we love randomized controlled trials. Excellent. I'm so <laughs> just, glad just, that. just want to make that clear. Excellent. <laughs> um, Excellent. Let's, let's look at lowering barriers to entrepreneurship. You know, I, I think it is something of a national tragedy that we regulate the entrepreneurship of rich people so much more lightly than we regulate the entrepreneurship of poor people. So, for example, if I wanted to start a social networking site here in Cambridge, let's say in Kendall Square outside of MIT, I would operate in practically a regulation-free zone. If I wanted to open a small grocery store or, you know, something, a place that serves coffee and milk in a poor area. Or a I hair salon, even. <laughs> Or a hair salon, I would face at least a dozen regulations that I would need to go through. Um, that is, you know, absolutely an, an awful thing. That we're making it harder for the the poor people who often can solve their own employment needs, can figure out what what are new opportunities for them themselves. We're making it so difficult for them to start new businesses. Now, there's a simple model for this, which is the Devons Enterprise Commission in what used to be Fort Devons in Massachusetts, and uh, the Devons model is essentially one-stop permitting. That you have one person who's in charge of getting all the permits in place for a new business. Um, that agency can specialize in consumer friendliness. They can learn languages other than English if, if you have an immigrant population. Um, and they can be judged based on how quickly they turn around permitting requests. So by, by centralizing it, we at least have a chance of speeding up the process and getting more of the entrepreneurship that is needed to end joblessness. Your biggest idea is that we should consolidate today's hodgepodge of benefits for unemployed people into a single cash benefit. Explain how that would work. What I'd like to see would be a policy that's like the earned income tax credit, which pays people to work. 
I would like that replaced with a larger and simpler benefit that would essentially increase the effective wage that people take home from you know, eight bucks an hour to 13 bucks an hour, right? That radically increase the take-home pay for people throughout uh, throughout the U.S. But it doesn't uh, give the that, companies an incentive to cut to cut back on jobs the way a, a similar increase in the minimum wage would do. That's exactly right. So the company is essentially getting you, and something like a third of the pr- of the price of your time is being paid for by the federal government. So so, so this is actually a proposal that a lot of liberals as well as conservatives could potentially rally around, uh, unless they feel that that businesses are being subsidized. Right. So you need to figure out a way to balance various interests on this. Um, and uh, you need to figure out how to make sure there are still some benefits in place for uh, the people who can't find a job even with this benefit. But it's a policy as opposed to universal basic income, which feels like it is just a knife in the back to the prospects of employment for less skilled Americans, that you're going to create a world in which people are going to be on the dole, they're going to be on the dole their entire lives, and they're going to be miserable about it. Um, that instead of going that route, we're going to a route that says we're going to help make work pay. It's going to pay more for the workers who actually show up at the job, and it's going to pay more for the entrepreneurs who create new jobs. And how likely is this to happen? <laughs> Sounds like a heavy lift. Uh, I, don't <laughs> I, don't, I don't see a lot of attention on this issue right now in Washington. A lot of other things seem to be taking up people's time. Uh, I think you know one way to read the recent election uh, is that there is just you know a lot of things are up for grabs. And uh, a lot of Americans are unhappy about a lot of different things. I think that just means it's a good time for floating policy proposals and uh, hoping that something good sticks. I mean, there are other solutions that people can, you know, can put forward. And I think the goal here should not be recriminating, uh, you know, your political enemies, whoever they might be, but trying to come up with the best public policy proposals that we can and then fighting for your ideas. And, Ed, you're also not saying we should punish the poor, keep uh, those people who have low wages down, um, that we're, we're actually trying to help people who are at the lower end of the spectrum. Absolutely, we're trying to help the poor. We're trying to give people who, who are you know, working for more money, and we're trying to make sure that they take home more. And we're saying reform current proposals that discourage people from working and ratchet in into a better benefit that promotes, promotes employment. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm, I'm Jim Meggs. <laughs> and I'm Richard Davies, anxious to say that before Jim does. Ed Glazer, professor of economics at Harvard University. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Richard, our show is How Do We Fix It? And Ed Glazer from Harvard, to me, seems like just kind of an ideal guest because he's got some very tangible ideas to address a problem that doesn't really get enough attention. No, that's true. I I think there's much more attention around, for instance, uh, the minimum wage than there is around the crisis of men dropping out of the workforce. And the numbers really are pretty alarming when you consider that the official unemployment rate is now below 5%, which most experts say that that's pretty good. Yeah, but, but then 15%, this, 15% of men are not yeah. in the workforce, and a lot of those aren't even looking for work, so they're not counted. It hides that crisis of, yeah. of men just not even trying to be in the workforce. And so what Ed Glazer is saying, we need some policies to not to punish anybody, but to encourage people to go back into the workforce. And I love this idea that he has of people who are earning, say, 
10, 11, 12 dollars an hour below that 15 dollars an hour uh, minimum that the the answer is to subsidize them through through the government. So, but he makes the point that you have to trim back other programs to make that thing work, and you have to do it carefully so you don't wind up hurting the people who simply can't work. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit more troubled by some of that. For instance, if he's in favor of reducing the number of people on Medicaid, I'm against him. Yeah. I, I do think that people, that, 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 that we should have a that. universal system of health care. But, but he didn't say but he, that. Yeah, he didn't say well, that. Well, now we're on the health care thing. That, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just don't think that, that we should penalize people that, who, through no fault of their own, can't, right. can't work. Okay. One, one of the things that this show and other shows that we've done underlines is part of the search for solutions is to go overseas. Um, Ed Glazer mentioned the uh, stronger uh, educational attainment and, and really good vocational programs in countries such as Germany and Finland. Right. Uh, we've done previous shows on this with Lucy Crahan and Elizabeth Green on uh, building better teachers and, and better classrooms. Um, also, just looking at experiments around work and vocational training that have been done in some of these other countries that have worked, that have lifted people out of poverty and improved their skills. Right. Certainly Germany's apprenticeship program and some of the partnerships with different companies to, to help train people. I think we could do a lot of that here. But also, don't forget the other part. They cut back on some of their welfare benefits. They used to have incredibly generous unemployment, and they found out that people, as long as they were getting their unemployment check, they stayed unemployed. The, the minute that check ran out, a lot of these people did manage to go out and find another job. Incentives do matter. And there's a big difference between progressives and, and, and libertarians or conservatives is people on the farther on the left usually think that no one would stay out of work uh, unless they really had to. And so we therefore we're obligated to help them. And whereas people on the right say, well, you're also creating a set of incentives. Yes, you need to be humane, but over the long term, people will respond to these incentives. One area where we both strongly agree on is this idea that Ed came up where you have one state agency, say it's Massachusetts or it's Iowa or it's Idaho. You have one agency that issues uh, permits to businesses so that if there are difficulties for people, for instance, who have English as a second language or they have difficulty filling out forms on what are required, the, 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 um, the, the various requirements for opening a business that they are helped that's that great that's a entrepreneurship great idea. is encouraged that's and a great it's idea. done simply people talk about entrepreneurship and starting companies and we always think it's somebody in you know silicon valley the vast majority are started by people who aren't even necessarily rich you know somebody opens a little tiny chinese restaurant in your town and making it easier for those people to start those businesses work their way up that's often the path to success in our in our society. It doesn't have to come from, you know, getting a job at some giant corporation. So another great show, Jim. I'm Richard Davies, the bleeding heart centrist. <laughs> and I'm Jim Meggs, the, the squishy libertarian. And this is How Do We Fix It? Produced by Miranda Schaefer. And the show is a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for joining us.